There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. And Greg, you missed last week. I did. But last week we had Blair on the show and we wrapped up our retirement mini-series discussing investment strategies and fallacies of those in retirement years. And it was a wrap-up to the four episodes where we looked at lifestyle goals, layers of income and financial planning, retirement funding, And lastly, the investment strategy discussion, which is usually where people start their retirement discussions, which is the wrong way, right, Greg? Yeah, absolutely. Got to start with the goals and work your way back. Exactly. So today we're going to go a different direction, and we're so happy to have on our show a true expert in behavioral finance. And we've talked about behavioral finance in our episodes in the past, but I'm really excited about the person who's joining us today. I met him a couple of years ago at a conference, pre-COVID. Remember when we used to go to conferences? Oh, the good old days, but... Hopefully they'll be back soon. I'm sure hopeful. So today we're so thrilled to have Daniel Crosby join us. Daniel is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. He holds a PhD in psychology and has successfully bridged the gap between the social sciences and the investment world. He's a New York Times bestselling author of the book named The Best Investment Book at the Time of Publication. And he also runs a podcast called Standard Deviations. And that's one that I listen to frequently And we've quoted many times on our show. So, Daniel, we have to give you some credit for those quotes. And we just want to welcome you to the Free Lunch Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. And it's good to know where all my Canadian downloads are coming from. Thank you very much. (laughs) Exactly. Well, listen, Daniel, we were just talking before we started recording, but maybe you could start off by telling us your story. How did you end up where you are today? What was your path? So I am the son of a financial advisor. So my dad is still in the business. He actually got his job on the day I was born. He dropped out of graduate school and he was cutting yards for a living. And I think my mom was beginning to question her decision-making about who she had landed (laughs) with. And my dad got his job as an advisor on the day I was born. So he's been in the business ever since. So I grew up really steeped in the sorts of conversations that you have with clients every day. My dad preached from an early age, being frugal, being charitable, investing early, the power of compounding, all the great lessons you teach your clients, I learned at a young age. And so when I went to college, I was taking general education classes with an eye to becoming a financial advisor like my dad. And I just really fell in love with psychology. After my first year of school, I actually went on a mission for my church to Southeast Asia And so there I'm building schools, I'm teaching English, I'm helping out. And I just sort of fell even more in love with this idea of doing something with my professional life that had people at the forefront and was trying to help. And so that's what drew me to clinical psychology, which is what my PhD is in. But about three years into my PhD program, I started to burn out. I was just bringing work home with me. I was dealing with some really rough clients. I wasn't handling it well. And I was just internalizing the stress and said, I'm not sure I want to be a doctor, like a clinician. 
for the next 40, 50 years. And so I was talking to my dad as sort of my friend and career coach. And he said, there's a lot of psychology in the work that I do. And I was like, at the age of whatever, 23 at the time, I was like, no, what are you talking about? You're a financial advisor. You're a money guy. You're a numbers guy. And so he sort of turned me on without him knowing what it was called 17 years ago. He sort of turned me on to the field of behavioral finance. And long story short, that was sort of my first entree into understanding that markets really are about the intersection of mind and money. I didn't grasp that until that point. He set me on the path there. That's really cool. I don't even know where to go with that, Greg. Where do you go with that? It's an interesting diversion. And certainly, I guess we've talked about some of the other leaders in the whole field of behavioral economics. And what stage was the industry or the study of behavioral economics at when you got into it? And how did you sort of find the transition into that with existing research that was being done? When I graduated, so I got my PhD in like 2007. And so when I got out and got my PhD, I started working for a bank and I was doing pre-employment assessments of bankers. So before a bank would hire someone, I would give them an IQ test and a personality test and the like, and make sure that they were a good fit. So it was inside the bank that I discovered the work of people who are still luminaries in the field, like Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman and people who had pioneered behavioral economics 40-ish years earlier. But when it came to everyday advisors in 2007, if you had heard of behavioral finance and you were implementing it in your practice in any meaningful way, you were a unicorn. I mean, that was just really not happening. So that was sort of the business opportunity that I saw was, look, there was so much great research up here in the ivory tower of academia. Some of these now Nobel Prize winning luminaries in the field had done some incredible work, but it wasn't making it to people like Colin and Greg. It wasn't making it to people like my dad, who are in the trenches every day working with clients, but not necessarily benefiting from the insights of behavioral economics or behavioral finance. And so I said, look, I can speak both languages. I speak advisor and I also speak wonky academician. And so I can be sort of a translator between this really esoteric part of the world and this very applied part of the world. And I think that's basically what I've done. Low these many years, that's kind of been my career is translating between those two worlds. Well, and thank you for doing that because for us, as you know, in this chair, that's where the rubber really hits the road is how can we take all of this great research and things we know about people's biases, emotional and cognitive, and how do we help them not necessarily overcome them, but understand them and adapt accordingly. So Daniel, maybe you could just explain for us what exactly are behavioral biases and how important is it for investors to understand these biases? Behavioral biases I think the most generous way to think about them is their cognitive shortcuts. So if we look at our brains, our brains make up two to 3% of our body weight, but they account for 20 to 25% of our caloric expenditure in a given day. So they're not very big, but they are very hungry. And so one of the things that we're always looking to do is to think less. And so one of the ways that we can reduce this cognitive load, reduce the drag on our brains is to rely on stereotypes or heuristics or rules of thumb. And that's really what biases are. Biases are like, oh, Canadians are like this. 
Americans are like this. And so when I meet Colin and Greg, I don't have to really do the heavy lifting of getting to know them. I can just apply my Canadians are nice and overly apologetic lens. (laughs) (laughs) And then I can save myself some cognitive load. Now, however, you know, I give sort of this funny example of what you two are like. If I'm operating from that lens, though, I'm going to miss nuance. I'm going to miss subtleties about who you really are. And perhaps you're a lot like the stereotype in my head, and perhaps you're nothing like the stereotype in my head. And so the same way that we have biases about people, we have biases about money. So people have all this sort of emotional valence and all of these preconceptions about money. And so whether in their personal financial lives or in markets, all that stuff is stressful and all that stuff is complicated and highly analytical and takes a lot of work. And most people aren't great at it and they're not schooled in it. And so they just rely on these rules of thumb or they rely on emotion. The final thing I'll say about this is that the more extreme, either to the positive or negative, a person's emotions are, the more likely they are to be biased. So we find that people who are really happy, like in the research, people who are really happy are also often really biased because they don't want to do sort of the nitty gritty thinking that's going to shake them out of that happy place. Like they just want to stay sort of high and dry, happy, and they don't want to think and get bummed out. So the same is true of people who are very fearful or stressed out. So really, biases are just cognitive shortcuts, but they're exacerbated by any kind of move away from the middle point in terms of our emotional lives. We get more and more biased. Well, and one of the, and we'll get into the different biases or do you say biases or biases? I should ask you the academic. No, no, it's tomato, tomato. They both work. (laughs) Yeah. I often question that because I think of biases in our chair, probably just like your father's chair, where he's meeting with somebody about their future and they're talking about planning and what they want to do. And then they default to things like, well, what stock should I buy? Which it actually has nothing to do with planning a 30 or 40 year period. It's just, it's like a piece of candy in front of you. So I think of our role over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years has really evolved more to why do you want to own that? How does that fit into your plan? How do you see that changing going forward for investors when they look at their biases? Well, so you make a point about the landscape of a financial professional has changed over the last 20 years. So I'm 41 years old. And in my adult life, I've lived through two of the three worst economic downturns in US history. I mean, I'm not that old, but it's been a rough adulthood. I sort of expect that to persist. And like what we saw during the COVID crisis was the quickest bear market of all time and then the quickest bull market of all time. Markets are just going to move faster and faster going forward. And as information becomes more widespread, as the ability to trade becomes free now, basically everywhere, at least here, as it becomes easier and easier to trade and it becomes people have better and better access to information, markets are going to move faster and faster to the upside and to the downside. And I think it's going to elicit the worst in people in terms of their fear and greed. So all of the research shows, I talk about this in my book, The Laws of Wealth, and in chapter two, I talk about the enormous volume of research that shows how much better people who work with a financial professional do than those who do it themselves. 
But all of that research owes almost exclusively to a single factor. And it's that advisor keeping that person out of their own way. If you kept a client from selling in March of 2020, and you kept them invested when otherwise they would have panicked, they'll never pay you back. If they work with you for another 20 years, your fees will never match the economic good that you did for them. And so I think the research shows that people who work with advisors do better than those who don't because the advisors help them at critical inflection points when they want to give in to those biases and those worst impulses and the advisor prevents that. I expect that to continue and I expect that to become even more pronounced in the years to come. I've had a saying said to me that I quite like. It's fear is transitory and greed is part of the human soul. I don't know who said that. I just like the quote, but it reminds me of back a year ago, last March, when things were really scary and everybody forgets that. And everybody says, yeah, but we knew it would come back and look where we are today. And they talk about it like it was just fact. When a year ago, it literally felt like the world was going to end and everybody was going to die. And that, I guess, would be probably a classic example of hindsight bias. And I'm just wondering, Daniel, if you can just maybe talk about what are some of the most important biases that people succumb to and cause the greatest amount of grief when it comes to investing. Colin hit on two there. You're right. One is hindsight bias, also called knew-it-all-along bias. (laughs) Looking back with now 2020 vision, no pun intended, looking back with perfect knowledge of how things were going to shake out, it's easy for us to say, ah, March of 2020 was no big deal. I mean, at the time, if I'm honest and I put myself in that place, I was scrambling trying to make sure my children had enough meat and toilet paper. Like, I mean, it was legitimately scary. And we didn't know much about the virus. We didn't know what the economic impact was going to be. So we did not know it, even though it feels like we knew it all along. And then now we're experiencing what I'd call normalcy bias, which is the human tendency to think that what's going on now is all that will ever go on. We as a human race think about the world in exactly the opposite way of markets. So in March of 2020, when everything was terrible, we looked around us and we said, well, everything's going to be terrible going forward. This is just it now. We live in a dystopian hellscape where there's no toilet paper and no ground beef and we just can't get anything right. And it's always going to be like this. Now, looking where we are today with everything elevated, with everything on fire, seemingly every IPO, the average IPO last year went up 72%. Every IPO seemingly blowing up, the stock market running hot, real estate hot. We look around now and go, oh, wow, everything's always going to be like this. So the thing about us is our minds are wired to think that whatever's going on now is whatever will be ad infinitum. But the way that markets work is whatever we see now, the opposite is going to tend to be true in the medium term. So periods of great depression in the markets, we have to know this too shall pass. This too shall pass. It won't always be like this. But the same this too shall pass mantra needs to chasten us at times like this when things are running a little hot and we go, hey, like let's be a little conservative. Let's make sure we're still diversified and still making right choices because humankind tends to view history in a straight line, but markets tend to be mean reverting. 
Could you talk a little bit about what's driving those markets with the fear of missing out type of attitude? Is that a bias or is it just a thing? And how is that different than the fear of being in when things go down? What's funny about us fickle humans is that we have multiple simultaneous preferences. So when you look at an economist who has an idea of a rational human being, a rational human being would never buy an insurance policy and a lottery ticket in the same day. These things are like on opposite ends of the risk spectrum. And if we were purely rational, we would not do these things. And yet many of us do both of these things all the time. Like we take certain decisions that are with an eye to getting rich and certain decisions with an eye to not becoming poor. And so we have multiple simultaneous preferences. We want to be safe when times are bad, but we also want to shoot the lights out when times are good. And of course, there's no real way to do that. There's no real way to do both of those things, except I think perhaps in a bucketed way, you could have a portion of your assets trying to shoot the lights out and a portion of your assets as a buffer, but you can't have both. There's a strong relationship between risk and reward. And so we have these multiple simultaneous preferences for becoming extravagantly wealthy and never losing money. And they just really can't coexist in any sort of meaningful way unless we tease them out and sort of bucket them and look at those buckets for their intended purpose. Some interesting things happened recently that I think might tie into some of this discussion. So if I can mention GameStop. Oh, we got to talk about that one again? We do. Yeah. GameStop and the Robinhood Reddit crowd and things like that. So there's a lot of biases, I'm sure, wrapped up in that whole event. But can you maybe talk a little bit about what drives that? What gets people on board like that? And what mistakes are they making cognitively or emotionally to think that that's going to end well? So GameStop, I think, is actually a really interesting example that has a ton to do with COVID in particular. So there have always been message boards. Before the internet, there were little investing clubs. Since the internet, there have always been Yahoo message boards and discussion rooms and all this. So in some respects, Reddit and the Wall Street Bets crowd are nothing new. This has always been around. But what you have now is a group of people who are completely shut off from each other. When we look at what makes people happy, what makes people well, social connectedness and relationships are at the top of that list every single time. And so for more than a year now, we've all been locked in our homes, kept from each other. Loneliness is at epidemic levels. Suicidality is up in the US four and a half times year over year. People are just lonely and disconnected and having a tough time and their lives have been completely de-risked. Now, enter the GameStop phenomenon where it's positioned in two ways. The first way it's positioned is you're part of a movement. And that was extremely appealing to people who were lonely and bored and shut in their house and sitting around with, in many cases, money from the government. So it's like they're bored, they're lonely, they're disconnected. And here comes a movement that I can be a part of. And oh yeah, the message of this movement is you're going to get rich and you're going to stick it to the man. So it's like, I'm part of a movement, I'm going to make a bunch of money, and I'm going to do it in this righteous way. I mean, the week that GameStop was going crazy, I don't think I slept more than four hours one night. I was up every night reading these message boards because as a psychologist who studies market behavior, 
it was like my Super Bowl. I was so fascinated. <laughs> and that's really, <laughs> that's really how this was positioned as like, you're going to get rich and you're going to do it in this righteous way where it's taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And so I think there were like moral ethical undertones to that whole thing. I think the loneliness and isolation was a big factor. I think good old fashioned greed was a good factor. And so I think it was just this perfect confluence of events that caused us to witness a truly incredible thing. And I mean, I haven't looked at it recently, but when last I looked, whatever, 12 months ago, GameStop was about 820 bucks a share. It's still sitting around. 140 or 150. I mean, even after an enormous haircut from 400 or whatever it got to. So, I mean, it's still really elevated. And that tells you just the power of that movement. It reminds me a little bit, people say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I don't know who said that, but whatever the case, I had been in the business for about four years back in the first tech boom, 1998, 99, 2000. And that was the beginning of like discount brokerages were just relatively new on the horizon. And there was a lot of research coming out. I was at a conference, I think in 2000 or 2001, Terrence O'Dean spoke at another behavioral guy and was talking about how research from those discount brokerage accounts showed that obviously the more trading, the worse the outcome. And certainly that people that traded more frequently tended to have poorer results than people that basically bought it and forgot it. And it sort of strikes me that what's going on with starting last year in COVID leading up to this whole GameStop thing, but what's going on with Robinhood and free trading and people with more time and more money on their hands to sit around, it, it seems like a little bit of a repeat of that. And again, it's not identical and people have tried to maybe compare it, but are there some comparisons there? You've got a new crop of investors and basically it was almost free to trade on discount brokerages 20 years ago. Now it is free to trade. And would you expect to see the same kind of pattern that we saw the first go round, where it's all fun until it's not fun anymore and then things go back to normal? Or is this the new normal? It's interesting. Free is its own category in the human mind. When you look at behavior, when something is free versus when something costs a penny, which is effectively free. People will eat four times as much of something that is free than they will of something that costs a penny. And so it's just free is its own category. And so, yeah, before trades were five bucks or whatever, four or five bucks or whatever they were before, now they're free. But I got to tell you, free is qualitatively different. Even though it's only $5, people feel emboldened to do things in a way when it's free that they never do before. So that's one thing that's not going away. The other thing is a lot of these apps make money from selling order flow. So they have a reason for people to want to trade, even though they're not, they're making money on the frequency of people's trades, even though they're not charging for the trades. And so in a very real sense, the user interface of many of these apps is incentivized to make people trade as much as they can and to do everything wrong, to compare their trading behavior to other people, to mimic the crowd. I mean, there's one that I won't name, but there's one platform that very literally encourages you to mimic the crowd and it's just crazy. 
So in a very real sense, they're telling you to do all the things that Odin and Barber and the rest have been writing about for years that are terrible for us. But it's what happens when what's good for the investor runs into what's good for the platform. And you can bet that the platform is going to do what's good for the platform. And what's sneaky about it is they can do it under the auspices of democratization. They can do it under sort of the cloak of saying, this is good for investors. We're giving you what you wanted. We're giving you access. We're giving you all these things. Well, access in a very real sense, this isn't a popular comment, but like access the enemy of the average investor. The average investor needs to do less. They need less access. The trades should cost more (laughs) (laughs) and people would be better off if things weren't quite so easy. So I think this is here to stay. I think this particular moment in time, lockdown is still fairly widespread. Activities are still fairly limited. So people are still kind of bored and isolated and in their houses. I think when people can re-engage with the world a little bit, it'll abate some. But the free trading and all sort of the behavioral fallout of that is here to stay, I think. We have a portfolio tool on our belt that we've used over the years. It's a magic eight ball. And we would pull it out when somebody would come in and say things like, should I buy GameStop? And we said, well, let me refer to the portfolio tool. And it was just a prop. It was just to show, look, this is crazy. I mean, how would I know that? How would you know that? I mean, the only way you'd know if you should buy or sell something specifically is if you have more information than the market and the chance of you having more information than the market are very little. So isn't that kind of what's going on with the GameStop, AMC, all these other trades that are occurring? It is, but my worry during this whole thing is that people are learning the wrong lessons. So there's a lot of people, the number of retail traders has tripled in the last 10 years. The number of options traders has 6x in the last couple of years. So people are not just trading more, they're engaging in complicated trading. And it's sometimes levered trading and trading that they don't really understand. And so the fear for me is that at a time like this, when things are a little frothy, there's a strong bifurcation of results. Like if you look at the GameStop thing, there's people that made tons of money on GameStop for no good reason, not because they had any sort of profound thesis or did any sort of reasonable due diligence. It's like they heard about it on the news or on Twitter, they invested in it and they made a bunch of money. There's also people who are learning the other lesson about markets, that you can lose your shirt. There's people who are on the other side of these trades who are doing very poorly and are walking away with an idea of that's sort of unnecessarily scary. I worry that they will be so snake bitten by the whole process that they won't return to do what markets really do well, which is to compound wealth slowly over a long period of time in a way that's extremely powerful and not that scary. I guess that's my biggest fear about this whole thing is that people are just learning the wrong lessons. They're either walking away thinking they're trading gods or that the market is this terrifying place to be and neither thing is true. It sort of raises the question for me, Daniel, is how do you walk that fine line? Because you've got really both sides of the coin right now at this point in the market. You've got the overconfidence optimists who have made some good money over the last year by either being in the right place at the right time or what have you. And they're very optimistic indefinitely into the future because, of course, why would this change? And then on the other side, we have people that are 
It's like they're so nervous and they listen to the pessimists or the bears. And it seems that bears sound a lot smarter than bulls. Bears, they've done their deep analysis and they've evaluated valuations and compared to previous times in history. And based on their analysis, we get out of the market by April 27th. You've got these two types of people. And how do you balance that off and walk that fine line with regards to as you say, long-term returns make money slowly over time. How do you fight the overconfidence on one hand and then the fear, typical me, I get in just at the end, just before the big crash, and that's my bad luck? I'll give sort of a flippant answer, and then I'll sort of expound on your real question. I think the flippant answer that happens to be really true is that for the average investor, you shouldn't think about any of it. Like, I mean, I think for the average investor, you should go watch hockey. (laughs) You should worry about maximizing the engine of your wealth. You are the engine of your wealth creation. You should make yourself the most marketable, high-earning, wonderful-to-be-around human that you can be. You should really focus on cranking up the engine of your wealth. That's something you can control. And then you should forget about the markets. You should spread it around. You should work with someone competent to hold your hand through the fire. And you should go play with your grandkids. You should watch hockey. You should go run a marathon. You should do a thousand things that are more important than talking about the stuff that the three of us have to talk about all day. If you really are sort of convinced that keeping a finger on the pulse of the markets is important. And I would tell you that the research says that it's not. (laughs) But if you're really (laughs) convinced that this is something that you need to do, I think the thing you have to understand is how we're wired. We are wired to be two and a half times as fearful as we are happy. We have an asymmetrical preference for avoiding bad stuff than getting good stuff. If you lose a hundred bucks, you're two and a half times more upset than if you gain a hundred bucks. And so you have to understand that asymmetry and understand that the bearish news is always going to kind of scratch that itch. And the bearish news is always going to feel more articulate or better reasoned. But you also have to understand that over time, it's a probability game. You got to play the numbers and the numbers say the market goes up seven years out of 10. And so being invested and staying the course is your best path. So I really strongly believe that the best thing you can do is just not think about it and go control the controllable by making yourself a better earner and a better person. And I think if you insist on it, just know that you're wired to be goofy. Know that you're wired to sort of view this stuff through a prism that is sort of a doomsday prism. Right on. Do we got any last questions for Daniel before we jump into something a little more fun? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground there and probably that's loads for the listeners to absorb and spend some time thinking about. I like that you, you Daniel, made a preconception that we would just go and watch hockey. Yeah. <laughs> so as good Canadians, that's what we do, right? I'm just trying to listen. <laughs> I'm just stressed out and playing to my biases. <laughs> Maybe you love baseball. I don't know. Hey, listen, so we have a short speed round we want to take you through. It, it's sort of a Canadian-specific at one point. Having known that you've lived in Canada for a short period of time, we're hoping that you'll do better than our previous U.S. guests. I'm sure you will. But, Greg, you want to start us off? Well, let's start with something because this is the province that Colin and I both hail from. 
how would you spell Saskatchewan? S-A-S-K-A-T-C-H-A-W-E-N. Oh, so close. Oh, man. You One just about letter. nailed it. <laughs> that was awesome. That, that was, was the closest, though, Greg. That was the closest. Yeah. <laughs> Is it W-A-N? It's E-W-A-N. 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 So close. You nailed it. Yeah, that was awesome. I got greedy. I should have written it down and then read it off. <laughs> I wanted to be quick on the draw. Got a little cocky there. No, that's right. Yeah, I did. <laughs> on those colder mornings in Atlanta, if there are such a thing, do you ever uh, wear a toque? That is a beanie. Hey, hey good job. <laughs> Boy, you're killing this. Yeah. Greg, what do you got? Have you ever had ketchup potato chips? I have had ketchup potato chips. I love your country so much. Ketchup potato chips are absolutely disgusting. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope to live in Canada. My family had so much fun in Canada. I'm never going to say the word process and I'm never going to eat ketchup potato chips. These are non-starters for me. <laughs> the important thing is you actually knew what they were. So that's the point as well. <laughs> well, and when you move to BC with your family, will you buy everybody a bunny hug? Oh no, I don't know what this is. Well, you probably do. What is it? A bunny hug. It is a hooded sweatshirt with the pocket at the front in Saskatchewan known as a bunny hug. And also I think in Australia. But anyways, that's a very specific it's a hoodie. One. It's a hoodie. Can you call it a yeah. bunny hug? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is a Collins thing. I grew up in Saskatchewan. I'd never heard of it. So it's a generational thing. I think thing, this probably. is a generational thing. You're right. Yeah. But yeah, if you Google bunny hug, you'll find it. My kids started calling stuffed animals stuffies. That's a Canadian word that's an improvement over the Americans' stuffed animals. We call them stuffies now. That's an improvement. Oh, there you go. Bunny hug. Yeah, sorry. Didn't stuffies, otherwise known as teddy bears, weren't they called teddy bears after Theodore Roosevelt? Isn't that a story I heard? I think so. Yeah, I think that's the story. Well, maybe we won't take you through anymore. Do we have any more Canadian ones we want to go through? <laughs> well, actually... You actually alluded to one. What we normally ask our guests is, have you ever witnessed a sorry fight? You had mentioned Canadians' propensity to apologize. So you've probably been on one end of a sorry fight. In yeah, your... sorry about that, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. Canadians are so nice. The other thing I'll say about Canada is incredible driving, respect for pedestrians. Like in America, you'll just get run down in a crosswalk. <laughs> Like, you better look out. And in Canada, there would be a car 100 yards from me, and I'd start to cross, and they would throw on the brakes. It was so nice. (laughs) Everyone was so nice about the pedestrians and the bicyclists. Well done, Canada. Well, not not only that, we'll wait until you get to the other side before we even start moving. So (laughs) That's right. It might explain our traffic jams. Don't try that in Atlanta. You'll die. (laughs) Don't try that in Atlanta. Well, we were in New York City years ago, and... Some locals gave us heck for waiting for the crosswalk light. I mean, (laughs) I couldn't understand. Like, they actually gave us a hard time about it. Well, New York is known for giving people a hard time. So (laughs) that fits. That's great. Well, Daniel, thanks again for being a good sport and for joining us. I know you didn't have to do this, and you probably have an hour you could be doing something where you're getting paid or things like that. I didn't know if. You knew that you're not getting paid for this podcast, but. Oh man, I got to fight my agent. No, this was great guys. (laughs) This was fantastic. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thanks again. Sign off then and say thanks. And I don't know, maybe we can have you back sometime and we can, I don't know, have a repeat. 
I'll wear my bunny hug. <laughs> right on. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Well, Greg, that was a fun discussion with Daniel Crosby. It was, yeah. He's a great guy and he's got a lot of information to impart. Yeah, it'd be interesting to spend more time with him, but obviously we want to keep these episodes to a reasonable length to keep our listeners engaged. But next time we are going to get into looking at the best and worst ideas that we and others have made or been around during our time rotating around the sun. And I think we're going to get into sort of specific investment things, of course, but I'm sure there'll be a few other ones thrown in. I'm sure there will. That's going to be fun. All right. Well, thanks again, Daniel. And we hope to see everybody, or not see them, but we hope you'll listen to us next time. Next time it is. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.